VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If the question is, well, what will all the people do? You know, I think that's, it's kind of sad to ask that question. I think human creativity and human potential is so much more than stacking cookies in a box. Like there's creativity, there's ideas, there's intelligence. And like, there's so much more that can be unleashed by using that intelligence in a more effective way. So it's because I believe in the, the potential of humans that I think we need much more robots. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. How is everybody doing? This week, we have a very special, special guest. So, just to take you guys back in the time machine. The first episode of Danny in the Valley was May 12, 2017, almost six years ago. How wild is that? Anyhow, my first guest was a guy called Saman Farid. So I was, you know, just to give you a context, I was still relatively recent arrival to the Bay Area. I was really fascinated about robotics because there's a ton of investing and really interesting stuff happening around that time. And I thought he would be a great first guest to talk about everything that might be possible out here, the present future of the kind of the state of the technology, the rise of the machines, which is this idea that really uh, inspired a lot of breathless headlines about the end of work, etc, etc, etc. Anyhow, six years on, he's done a bunch of different stuff. He left behind his old gig as a venture capitalist, which is what he was doing then. He has since founded a new company called Formic, which is basically like a robots for hire company for manufacturers and factory owners across the country, which, if you don't know, is suffering from an acute and rapidly worsening worker shortage. There's more than a million manufacturing jobs right now vacant. It's really, really, really hard to find actual human beings to do these jobs. So he talks about how many people can be replaced by just a single robotic arm, why we should not be worried about the this impending rush of automation, especially as we have the rise of like this kind of generative AI, things like ChatGPT, DAL-E, and what all that portends in terms of automation and the increased capabilities of robots to do more and more stuff and how all of this really is just a logical progression of the human condition which has uh, since history began really been a series of steps to figure out ways to spend less time basically surviving looking for food shelter etc and spend more time thinking inventing kind of you know making life better and easier so it's an interesting perspective. And Saman, he has a super unique background as he spent his entire childhood in China. You guys will really like this one. So without further ado, here's Saman Farid, the oest of the OGs of Danny in the Valley, founder and CEO of Formic, to talk about all things robots and the future of humanity. Enjoy. Well, it's so great to have you back because you were literally guest number one. Before we got on, I was looking, it was May 12, 2017, which is somehow almost six years ago. 
What an honor to be uh, to be at the beginning of the train. <laughs> the original conceit of this podcast was like, oh, I came out here and I was having all these interesting conversations. I was like, we should just start recording these and like turn it into a podcast. And I remember one of my early fascinations ha- when I had come out here was around robots. And I think the name of your, I titled it, Let's Be Friends with the Robots way back in 2017. So that was six years ago, May, oh, five and a half years ago. You were doing something called Comet Labs. That's right. Yep. And then I think you've taken a couple left turns and right turns, and now you're doing Formic. But um, first of all, how's it going? We're still friendly with robots, I take it. We are still friends with robots. One of our lines that we use when we're recruiting is uh, when when Skynet comes, like, don't you want to be able to tell the robots you were on their side? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that's that's our motto here. Whatever comes is inevitable, but at least we're on the side of progress. Yeah, since Common Labs, you know, a lot of lots evolved. Things are going well. Uh, you know, we're Formic is a two-year-old company. You know, we're relatively still kind of finding our sea legs. But uh, what's been incredible is just to see our robots getting deployed in more and more and more places. Uh, just this week, I think we had you know six or seven robots getting deployed across all kinds of factories, places making sheet metal, and places making food, and places that are making protein powder and chocolate chip cookies and it's just it's just incredible to see robots being put to use you know i think in typical silicon valley fashion uh when we started down this journey everything was a technology problem you know you kind of approach everything and say if only we had better ai and better sensors and better chips and better robot arms then all of our problems would be solved and the big realization for me over the last five six years has been in the case of robots in particular it's actually not a technology problem. The technology for very productive robots has actually existed now for 10 years, but adoption is extremely low. You go to a typical factory or a construction site or a farm and you don't see any robots. Yeah, uh, It's not because the need isn't there and it's not because the technology isn't there. Really, ultimately, it comes down to the fact that there's just way too much risk and complexity that's being asked of the end user. And so kind of we started Formic with that idea in mind. So what do you mean when you're at there's too much complexity for the end user? In other words, you're like, here's your robot and here's your phone book size manual of how to operate it? And not just even that, right? It's to start, if you're, if you're a factory, you have to start by figuring out what in your factory is a good fit to be automated. So that yeah. by itself is a very difficult question that requires a lot of robots, robotics expertise. Then once you've identified that, you have to go and figure out what robot is the right thing to solve this problem. Right. Uh, and that's actually a deceptively complicated answer as well, because most people don't sell a fully functioning robot work cell. They sell a robot arm, or they sell a gripper, or they sell a safety scanner, or they sell a conveyor. But for the factory to actually get anything meaningful done, you have to like bring all of those components together and get them to work. And so there's actually, you know, upwards of 100 different design choices that you have to make to choose a functioning mm. robot work cell. So, you know, in the kind of scoping of like, what, what should the robot do? Then the second part is like, how does the robot do it? Both of those are very difficult. And then once you've solved both of those problems, you still have the problem of coming up with hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash that you have to use to buy these systems that may or may not work. Right. Uh, and your needs may or may not change. And there's all this risk associated with making this giant investment. And so for kind of all of those reasons, the typical response of the factory owner has just been, I can't do this. Throw your hands up, I'll stick with humans. Yeah, I'll stick with what I know, even though there's a ton of empty headcount. So right now in America, there's one and a half million unfilled manufacturing jobs. Like the typical factory Mm. that we go to is up 
almost 50 to 70% underutilized, right? So they're wow. sitting idle 50 to 75% of the time. And it's all because there's just not enough labor. But this problem of robots is so hard to solve for these factories that there's no easy way for them to kind of get started. And so we just keep hearing over and over again, we've been trying to automate for the last 10 years, and we haven't figured out a way to get it done. So what is Formic? What are you guys doing? You could think of us as a robot staffing agency. <laughs> uh, so the same way that a, a factory might call a staffing agency to hire empty headcount, yeah, they can call us and we fill the empty headcount with robots. What that means is all the complexity that we, I described earlier, we still do it, but we do it on the behalf of the customer. I see. We also finance the entire thing. So we pay for all of the equipment and all the installation. And so the customer just pays by the hour to use the robots. So it's kind of much more outcomes driven. And then what we're able to do is because we're doing these projects across large number of factories, we can build a bunch of tooling and software and systems that makes the whole process much more efficient and much faster. So for example, instead of this kind of long and manual and arduous process of figuring out what thing in my factory should I automate, our technicians walk through the customer's site with a LiDAR scanner, we generate a full 3D model of their factory, and then we're able to automatically simulate and generate different robot work cells that might fit in that environment. And so it shortens this process down. When they set up that 3D model of the, the work site, how do they take account for what the people are actually doing or the work that is being done or what is automatable? Yeah, so we categorize those types of things into different like groups, right? Like there's not we're not we're not trying to solve every single problem on the factory floor, but like yeah. there are a couple of major categories right now. For example, in food production, we focus generally at the end of the line, which is where all the packaging happens, right? So right. once the food has been made, uh, whether it's granola or chocolate chip cookies or whatever, somebody has to put those things in bags and then put those bags into a box and then puts those boxes onto a pallet and then puts that pallet into a truck. So those are things that look, you know, regardless of what factory you're in, what food you're making, you kind of have to do those steps. Right. The same thing goes for metal fabrication. There's a lot of factories that have these giant, you know, CNC machines or presses or milling mm. machines. And there's a person that just stands in front of it all day, loading it and unloading it and loading it and unloading it. And that's a highly repetitive process. And so we categorize that bucket of things. We look at what the tasks are involved and we can kind of automate and repeat those things. Are you guys making the robots or is it like, so where are, because again, going back five, six years and obviously long before that, there's a question around, it felt like, you know, there's a whole kind of wave of automation and new kind of generations of different type of robots. And, and then every three months, you'll see some weird Boston Dynamics robot dog, you know, running through a field or doing backflips or whatever. Where are we in terms of that kind of automation journey? And are you guys actually now just be like, all right, there's enough like expertise and kind of components that we can kind of piece them together? Or do you make your own? Or like, where are we in that kind of universe? Because I think that's kind of interesting to see. You know, I have, a, I have an in-law who works for an Amazon warehouse. And it's like quite extraordinary this like symphony of robots all over. And he's like standing at one station, like taking a package from one place and putting it in another. And that's what he does. And then there's all mm -hmm. these robots, like, you know, just whirring around the entire space. It feels quite extraordinary, but I'd love to just get a sense from you. Cause this is, you know, what you do, where we are in that kind of the roboticization or automation journey. Yeah. You know, I think the frontier of things that robots can do well, is being pushed every day. Right? Yeah. Um, there's some set of things that robots have been able to do well for the last 
50 years. You know, if you go to a car factory, you'll see them. Yeah. Right? Welding and painting, those have been fully within the scope of robotics capability for a very long time. Totally. And as you kind of progress, there's a gradient of difficulty. Our hypothesis or what we've realized is that there's a lot of things right now that robots already can do very well. Mm. You know, welding and painting, loading things into boxes, you know, highly repetitive tasks. Robots already are very, very good at. And as AI has gotten better and computer perception has gotten better, more and more things have been added to that list. Right? Right. And so, for example, you used to be able to pick up only the same type of part over and over and over again. And now you can you know, hand the robot a bin full of parts of varying sizes and it can still intelligently decipher them, pick them out. The robots used to be designed for just a single task and now the same robot can do multiple tasks. So I think both those things are true. Like on the one hand, we're looking forward to the things that AI is enabling and it's pushing the boundaries of what robots can do. On the other hand, there's already a lot that robots do well that are not being adopted. For Formic, we kind of sit somewhere in the middle, which is on the one hand, you know, we're taking these proven technologies and just getting them deployed at scale. And then on the other hand, we're taking newer technologies and looking for the ones that are mature enough to be used in a real production environment and, and bringing them in. You know, one of the big challenges with these AI-driven systems is that even a very good AI-driven robotic system that's probabilistic in nature generally can get to like 85, maybe 90% accuracy in its reliability. And that sounds great in a lab environment, but in a factory environment, that's completely unacceptable, right? That means the robot has to be shut down and reset three or four times a day. And so in the world that we operate in in a kind of a real production environment, you need 99.999% reliability. So it just requires a very different way of thinking. And so when I was a VC and, and when we were talking at Comet Labs, I was investing in a lot of these things that were kind of pushing the frontiers of robotics and AI. So I'm, I'm inherently very optimistic and enthusiastic about those things getting into a production uh, environment. But on the other hand, I think like there's still not a lot that's crossed that chasm of theoretically possible, but practically useful. Which brings us perfectly to ChatGPT and MidJourney and Dolly and all of these, like the generative AI thing, which has really caught kind of everybody's imagination. You know, obviously within Silicon Valley, there's a whole generative AI kind of bubble happening right now. But also beyond of just like people being like for the first time, like, oh my goodness, here's this thing I can play with and I can ask it to write a song or write a scene from Seinfeld or answer a question about who Henry VIII was or whatever. And it does it more often than not in a quite convincing way. And you're like, oh my God, the robots are here. And I know that's different than what you are doing, but is there a read across from that kind of what is happening in that generative AI world? to what what you guys are seeing when you're actually trying to deploy machines that do stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think what, you know, ChatGPT and Dolly and Midjourney, like what the, what they've accomplished is revolutionary and I think it's going to completely change the world that we live in. Do you think that's going to happen? Like that it is revolutionary. Absolutely. Yeah. Why? The number of use cases for that are kind of mind-boggling. Hmm. The trick to it is figuring out what are the applications where 85% accuracy is good enough. And uh, there's a lot of those, right? There's a lot of places where 85% right is enough because there's also a lot of things that humans probably could only do 80% right, mm-hmm. right? So, so as long as it's you know similar or better than a human, you know, I think there's a lot of things where it's very valuable. So like you said, like is it 100% accurate? Probably not. Yeah. But the words that you used were 
more often than not. Yeah. <laughs> and I think totally. exactly uh, th that's exactly the key. So yeah, I think to answer your question around where I think it's going to be useful in kind of all things where a human is engaged in production of content, production of like, so the way I, the way I think about it is it's drastically reduced the bar for creativity. And what I mean by that is in the past, if you wanted to be an artist, you had to not only have creativity and good ideas, but you also had to train for many, many years to be able to execute those ideas well. Yeah. You had to take yeah, yeah. The, these kind of uh, thoughts that you had and figure out right. a way how to like have your brush, brush strokes be good enough or get good at Photoshop. And I think now what's happening is that second requirement is getting reduced, right? You right. no longer have to be super, super skilled at a paintbrush and Photoshop. You still need the creativity and the ideas, but it's, it's lowered the bar and it's allowed a lot more people to become artists. Same yeah. thing goes with writing, right? Like, I think a lot of people have great ideas, for example, for a story or a sci-fi novel or a, a email that they want to write, but they don't have the training to become, you know, ex excellent writers, right? Mm. You were, you're a reporter. You've had lots and lots of training to do that, but yeah. most people don't have those skills. And so what this does is, you know, it maybe reduces the requirement of those skills, allows people to express those ideas really effectively. And so where are all the places where human creativity could be assisted by something that, that enhances their skill level. I mean, I think that there's so many things. Right. And is there a read across to just that, what looks like, you know, a pretty big leap in capabilities uh, when you're talking about kind of like draw me, whatever, somebody playing basketball in the style of, style of Dali, and then this thing is generated or, you know, some essays bit is written in the, in an instant. Is there a read across to what that can mean for machines, for things that like, either whatever humanoid or on wheels and what they might be able to do. Cause obviously Musk has said, and I know that he is famous for making these big bombastic statements that turn out to be never true or true 10 years or 20 years later than he thinks, <laughs> but like his whole humanoid robot, this is going to be bigger than Tesla. And you know, it was what we have seen thus far can barely stand. It appears, or, you know, take two steps and they're like really freaked out. It's going to fall over. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I I know some of the people on the on the Tesla self-driving car team, autopilot team. Yeah, and uh, I wouldn't underestimate their capabilities. They're the ones working on the robot, right? Their line is that it's just a robot that doesn't. It's not on wheels. It's on legs. Yeah, I mean, realistically, I think there's a lot of differences though between yeah. the two, and even autopilot. Like if you've driven a Tesla, you know, right? It's not 100% right. It's 85%. And that's why you still need the human as part of that, that loop. Yeah. And that's a high stakes situation. And it's a high stakes situation. Exactly. So like, do I think robots are going to become a lot more common? Like, definitely. Yes. Uh, do I think that humanoid robots are the way there? I personally don't see it. I think legs are just generally not a very efficient way of getting around in the modern world. <laughs> um, yeah. Wheels are probably a lot more, a lot more efficient, but I think there's going to be subsets of, of, of robots for each type of thing, right? Like we, for all the things that we're putting in factories right now, it's mostly just the robot arm. Like the arm is the only part you need. Right. If you really need it to be mobile, you could put the arm on wheels, right? But, but you don't need the whole humanoid robot. I think that the kind of Tesla announcement is probably a little bit more of a PR stunt than yeah, recruiting. A, a kind of serious initiative. Yeah. But to answer your earlier question around like whether or not these kind of breakthroughs in AI or having an impact in like the physical world, I think uh, the answer is definitely yes. The biggest part of that is in the realm of simulation. Mm. Right now, there are a lot of really great simulation tools that have been built that allow you to take a robot and 
run it through you know a hundred thousand different scenarios and every possible configuration and use that to train uh, a reward function for that robot that allows right. it to perform uh, in the real world. A lot of that is being assisted by the things happening in uh, in kind of generative AI. So we haven't seen a lot of those breakthroughs really in the real world. And I know OpenAI, for example, has let go of most of their robotics team a couple of years ago. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not a focus of research for them. But again, going back to, I think, like what, what uh, our thesis around Formic is that the adoption of robotics is not really being held back by robot intelligence, right? It's not because the mm. robots can't perform these tasks that we don't have robots everywhere. It's mostly because of all these other issues that make it difficult to deploy robots. If you needed a robot to come and fold your laundry in your house, like if you pay enough money, I'm sure like we can make it happen. You know, it's just, is it worth it or not? And it's also, you know, if you think about, if you just walk around your own house, you're like, well, the dishwasher is a robot. Yeah. And we've just like, we've installed it in a certain place. We know exactly what its function is and it works at that limited function. It feels like there's also a question of, you know, getting to that kind of that household robot, Rosie the robot from the Jetsons or whatever. It's really about these uncontrolled environments. That feels like the holy grail where it's like, we can just have this thing. It can do a bunch of stuff as opposed to here's a smart box that's good at doing one thing, like washing your clothes mm -hmm. or washing your dishes. Yeah, I think people have this expectation of robots being able to do all these different things well. And it's just inherently not that efficient. It's much better to have purpose-built systems that are good at accomplishing a specific thing really, really well. In the household, maybe it's different, but in factories, definitely, right? Like we have yeah. enough volume, we're doing the same thing over and over again. We need robots that can just do that thing really, really well. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Can we go backwards? We covered some of this uh, when we first had you on, <laughs> but that was a long time ago. So just like to talk about like who you are, where you came from and how you ended up coming to do this. So I was trained as an engineer and I worked briefly as an engineer at companies like Honeywell, but also some startups where we were commercializing different energy technologies. And where are you from? I, I can't remember. So I, my, my parents are originally Iranian, yeah. uh, but I grew up in China. So I spent most of my life in Beijing, basically from when I was born until I finished high school. I was in China. Wow. So do you speak, is it Mandarin? Yeah, I speak Mandarin. I went to public school in China. So I got to 
enjoy being the kind of only only non-Chinese looking person in, in the school. <laughs> wow. Was that difficult or great or both? Because it feels like it's quite a homogenous environment, it sounds like. Yeah. As a kid, you know, I think it quickly fades. You just start kicking around a soccer ball with everybody. And, and yeah. before you know it, you're just one of the crew. As we got older, I think like you started to notice and realize the differences more and more. I mean, I think it was... I feel very lucky because I think uh, I got to see a side of China that a lot of non-Chinese people don't don't get to see, uh, yeah. which is you know just being deeply ingrained with the people, right, and and seeing how how they function, how they think, and how you know, especially living in the West, there's this narrative around you know evil China is going to eat our babies, and spending time on the ground there with the real people, I think you start to see the beauty of the culture and the beauty of why people think the way they do and why people act the way they do. So I, I feel very thankful for that. I also feel very thankful because I was there during a period of, of real growth in China. Like when mm. we moved to Beijing originally, you know, there was a, you know, there was dirt roads and, and donkeys walking down the street carrying bricks. And it was just like a very different city. And, and over the course of the time that I lived there, by the time that I left, you know, it's this modern mega metropolis. Which was roughly when? The first time I left was around 2005. So you grew up in like the 90s, basically there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Late 80s, early 90s. And China went through this kind of massive, yeah. massive change during that time. I mean, really, like, historically dramatic change when you look at just very, very the amount of infrastructure and economic growth that happened there. I mean, it was insane. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the lives of the people changed a lot. Right? I think the older generation, even today in China, like when they were young, you know, had food shortages and lived in very different settings than they do today. And uh, for me, you know, I think the impact on me was that it, it, it showed me two things. One is it gave me a little bit of a sense of what's possible. Mm. Uh, and coming to the States, you know, I was, I was frustrated because things would change so slowly. Right? Totally. I would come back and visit the city, you know, every few years and be like, it looks the same. What's happening? Right. Whereas in Beijing, you know, every time, even now, every time I go back, you know, all the roads have been ripped up and it looks completely different. I can't remember if I told you, I, I used to cover uh, mining and natural resources. So there was like, you know, that whole boom time and just the amount of resource and kind of raw materials that China was using during that mm, period was yeah. just, I mean, I remember talking to mining executives. They're just like, it was like the greatest time in the history of the industry in many ways. Everything they were digging up was just being shipped to China to build roads and factories mm. and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, there's obviously like the environmental cost of that and the human cost of, of that, right? But the thing that you saw in the kind of individual Chinese person who was living in China during that time was this incredible sense of hope. Right? Mm. I think like they saw their lives get much better during those 10, 20 years, and they expect their lives to get even better, you know, in the next 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and I think that sense of, of hopefulness for the future is something that when I came to the States, I, I kind of didn't find in many places except in Silicon Valley. Right. Where, you know, in Silicon Valley, there's this absolute belief that things will be better in the future. Yes. But across a lot of the U.S., that's not really the case. Uh, I think people feel like the best days are behind us. Well, it's funny. We're kind of in many ways, we're on the kind of the, the very back end of that China story. Because we have like now mm -hmm. we have these Rust Belt cities and the kind of decline and fall in many ways of manufacturing. I was listening to something the other day and it was talking about the percentage of like, say, manufacturing jobs in the States 30 or 40 years ago. was something like 25% of people worked in a factory. And now it's down to 10 or something like that. It's like a really dramatic mm -hmm. change in just the nature of the economy because some of our infrastructure is terrible. Um, yeah. But 
it's it's fascinating to watch just the different life cycles. Yeah, but I think it's also a matter of being able to do things efficiently, right? Like labor costs are a big part of that of, yeah. of that question. You know, if you have to pay fifteen dollars an hour, it doesn't really make sense to run a factory in the states unless you use a lot of robots. But I think that that's the thing that COVID helped people realize is America needs a supply chain that it can rely on and yeah. can control. And I think there's this immense pressure to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. But if you want to compete with China uh, or Vietnam on like the cost of producing a water bottle, your raw material costs are roughly the same. Yep. Your factory equipment costs roughly the same, but your labor is triple or quadruple. And so I think for a factory in America to be able to produce this uh, efficiently, like the only way is to use a large number of robots. And I think that's kind of the thing that as Formic we're trying to solve is for American industry to be competitive, the only answer is is way, way more robots. Not like one here, one there, but how do we get hundreds of thousands of robots? To right. Just to put some numbers on it, in the States, there are 1.3 million unfilled manufacturing jobs today. Yeah. And it's increasing at a rate of about 10,000 per day of baby boomers who are retiring from manufacturing and not getting back. Right. On the other hand, in 2022, can you you know make a guess on how many robots were installed in, in the entire country of the United States? So I'm thinking in 2022, I imagine that would be mostly Amazon, if we're counting those little kind of rolly robots they use in their warehouse. So I don't know, uh, 50,000, 100,000. It's actually 30, 35,000, something like that. Right. So it's not even a not even a drop in the bucket, especially yeah. when you take out Amazon, right? For everybody else, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not even a drop in the bucket of of addressing the problem of of labor shortages. It's just like it's this kind of obvious gap. And I think going back to your question around like the Rust Belt and how do we kind of revitalize this like the industry in America? I think like what we're seeing when we walk into these factories every day is like there are like really dedicated, really hardworking people who want to make stuff, yeah, <laughs> but they need to figure out a way to make it cost competitive. It's just like the number of things that fit that formula of like, it's worth it to produce in the US. Like it's just shrinking every single day. And so like our hope is to bring competitiveness back to American manufacturing, but yeah, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Just to wrap up on the China piece, how did your parents end up going from Iran to China? <laughs> yeah, so my parents moved from Iran to the States in the late 70s, mm. uh, around the time of the revolution yeah. in Iran. And then they lived in the States for a while, and they decided that they don't really want to raise their kids in the States. They wanted to you know, expose us more to different things in the world, but also find things to do to kind of be of service to humanity. So they moved uh, to China and they set up a, a nonprofit in Western China for education of women in, in rural areas. Wow. And they fell in love with China and decided to stay. So what was their training? Like what had they done in Iran? My dad was an engineer who was in the finance industry. My mom was a, a biologist. So, you know, they were, they were they were working in the States, both of them, and decided to just leave. <laughs> so that's a big move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a core part of their kind of belief system of like, they want to be able to do something that, that they think is useful for humanity. And so that setting up that nonprofit was, you know, was a series of coincidences that ended up getting them there. But uh, once they were there, they decided to stick to it. And they ended up living there for 30 plus, uh, almost 40 years. Oh, wow. Wow. So you came here for university, studied engineering, yeah. and then worked at Honeywell. And how did you end up at Comet Labs? That was a VC firm, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I, I lived in the States. I, I went to college here. I worked here for a few years, you know, going back to like what I had seen in China, that, that, that pace of change mm. 
uh, I started getting really frustrated with what I was seeing. I was living on the East Coast at the time. So <laughs> I got frustrated. I was like, things look the same. You know, I've lived, been here yeah. X number of years and everything is the same. So I went back to China and I started a, a startup there, which was a e-commerce company. I ended up selling that business after a few years. Mm. Uh, and then I started another company that was around kind of IP television inf- infrastructure and, and networking infrastructure. And then ended up selling that, that business as well. So after the two startup uh, exits, I was trying to figure out what to do with my time. I, I, I kind of went and bummed around Australia for a little bit. And then one of my old investors asked me to join their, their fund. So I joined their fund with the intention of figuring out what my next thing was going to be. And kind of by accident, that turned out to be about 10 years of working as a VC. So no I worked well. for that fund for a while. Uh, then I set up my own fund, Comet Labs, uh, where we were investing in this intersection of AI and machine learning with the physical world. That's when I set up the group in San Francisco, and we built a team. We also built a venture studio here mm. where we were incubating businesses and helping to start companies. The real thesis for me then was, uh, you know, we had seen the beginnings of this kind of deep learning revolution. Yeah. You know, we saw a lot of people who were applying that to ad optimization and content recommendation and things like that. But I was personally kind of frustrated. I was like, where where are the applications of this for the physical world, for the real world? Right? And can you just give a brief description for those who don't know what deep learning is? Yes. There's a, a concept in, in AI called neural networks. It's a relatively old yeah. old idea that had kind of been discounted during the AI winter. And then roughly, I think, 10 years ago, there was a couple of groups, uh, starting with the University of Toronto and a few others, where they were able to use this technique of neural networks they trained neural networks to accomplish a bunch of different tasks. And they made these uh, networks much, much bigger and much, much deeper than previously was attempted because computing power had evolved so much yeah. since neural networks had just started. And it kind of revolu- revolutionized the field of, of AI. And that really was the kind of initial embers of this fire that, that is now the kind of AI revolution. And mm. deep learning started to solve problems. You know, I think one of the, the early ones that I remember was there was this uh, annual conference on on speech recognition mm. where it was happening year after year after year, and all of these kind of experts in speech recognition would come together and like work on different algorithms that try to kind of identify the different sounds in a word and then right. use those sounds to figure out what words they are. And it was this kind of very complex field, and even at their peak, they were getting like maybe seventy plus seventy ish percent accuracy in kind of this, this transcription of, of yeah. speech. And then this group of AI researchers that started using this this deep learning technique didn't know anything about speech recognition, but they just applied deep learning to mm. speech recognition. And they showed up at this conference, you know, the first time that they showed up and they had, you know, a kind of 80 plus or I think it was a 90 percent right. uh, accuracy rate. It just completely blew all of these old techniques out of the water. Uh, and that, that same thing has then been applied to more and more places. I think image recognition was another really big area where it was applied, yeah. handwriting recognition. And that wave is really what, what has kind of progressed to, to, to what we're seeing today in the world of AI and all the excitement around GPT. It's kind of all built on the foundations of what happened then. Right, right, right. And I can speak from personal experience. I've mentioned it before, but like I use a transcription tool called uh, Otter AI. It's like 10 bucks a month. And it's 90 pl- high 90s percent accuracy, I would say. And as a journalist, it's completely changed my... It is the single most important innovation in my life of doing this for 20 plus years. Yeah, the impacts are, are incredible. Yeah, the accuracy of it, because you're either doing shorthand or you're scribbling notes furiously while somebody's talking. And there's always going to be bits and pieces that maybe don't come through. 
And I don't know if you use those old those old transcription tools. Like I think there was one called Dragon or something. I did uh, not. Okay, there, there was a bunch of these old transcription tools, maybe ten plus years ago, that were very popular, but they were horrible. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they would get three words right, and then you'd have to go in and fix it, and they would get totally. three more words right. And it wasn't like a small improvement. It wasn't incremental. You know, they went from seventy to, to seventy two to seventy three. It was suddenly, uh, you know, you use this new technique and everything is much, much better. Yeah, exactly. Now I use it all the time and it just makes life so much better and more pleasurable to do my job. <laughs> because transcription, <laughs> everybody hates transcribing because it takes forever and it's just a ma mm -hmm. uniquely maddening experience. So there's that deep learning kind of engine for all of this. So you did Comet Labs for a while. How did that go? Venture capital's hard. It was fun. I loved it. Uh, we invested in a lot of really cool companies particularly those who are applying, you know, deep learning to these more traditional industries, whether it's mm. construction or agriculture or, you know, recycling or uh, just like a lot of, lot in healthcare and biotech. And it was amazing because, these, you know, a lot of the time these were the first attempts at using deep learning and AI in those fields. And so obviously, you know, as, as is typical with any startup, you know, there were some that were successful and some that weren't, but I learned a lot through that process and ended up spending you know many years as a VC. Ultimately, for me, the satisfaction of it started to go away a little bit because yeah. when we started investing in AI, it was kind of a controversial topic. Like most people weren't that interested in AI or they yeah, didn't yeah. believe that it was useful. And so we would fund companies that other people wouldn't fund or wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. And so there was a sense that we were having a little bit of an impact in the world, which was, you know, we were helping these companies that didn't have a lot of other options. As I spent more time doing that, you know, that kind of started to go away. Uh, you know, it became so much more consensus to invest in AI. Everybody was investing in AI. And for any company that we would fund, there were probably 10 other offers that they had on the table. Right. And it started to feel a little bit like, what's my contribution to the world here, right? Like either it's, you know, my LPs get rich or the other guy's LPs get rich, but I don't, it doesn't really make that big of a difference to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. It, you know, it doesn't really change like the trajectory of what's happening in the world. So that gave me the itch to kind of get back into building my own company again. And how much have you guys raised? We've raised about $30 million to date. Right. So we did a $5.5 million seed round about two years ago. And then we did a $26 million Series A about a year ago. The company's now about 60 people. And it's been going pretty well. You know, in 2022, we about 12x our sales compared to the previous year. Wow. And, you know, I think we're probably going to 5 to 10x it again this year. And we're just seeing incredible adoption because, you know, we're solving a real problem that factories have. How does that, I mean, imagine it's different all the time, but how does that conversation go when, I imagine by the time they're actually having you come into a factory, a factory owner is like, you know, please help us. But I imagine there's a lot of, to your point around reliability, cost, all of this stuff, like it's a, it feels like it's a big leap to ask somebody to be like, look, we're going to install this machine that you've never used before. Trust us, it's going to work. Trust us, it's going to be cheaper than whatever, three equivalent humans, and it's going to work, and it's all going to be great. I mean, how how hard is that kind of pitch? It's not that hard because we don't really ask them to trust us, right? We put our money where, where our mouth is. So we say, it's going to be 10 bucks an hour, and it's going to put five of these bottles into this box per minute. And if we don't hit that metric of five per minute, you're not paying us. Oh, okay. And there's no upfront cost, right? So there's no downside for them. They just say, yes, we show up with the robot. And if we can do what we say we can do, you know, they'll pay for the hours that they use it. And if we don't, they don't. And so it's a very straightforward kind of proposition. 
Right, right. And is there a rough kind of rule of thumb about like, you know, you bring in a robotic arm and that you have set up to do job X. Is it roughly equivalent to like one person or two people? Or is it because I presume it can work nonstop or close to it that it's kind of, you know, what do, what do the economics look like? Yeah. So typically, most of the factories that we put these robots in right, run two shifts a day. So it's usually uh, about 18 to 20 hours a day. Some of them run three shifts a day, which brings it up to 24. So the robot, you know, if it replaces one kind of empty headcount, then it's three people. A lot of the robots can replace more than one, uh, you know, if it's doing a more complex task. Hmm. For example, we put in a robot that tends uh, CNC machines. So CNC machines are these giant machines that cut metal parts for yeah. automotive or aerospace. And so, you know, the robot will pick, pick up a blank, it'll put it in this, you know, machine number one, and then it'll pick up a second blank and put it in machine number two. And, do, you know, it'll do, it'll be tending four machines at the same time, and waiting for them to complete their task. And then once once the metal part has been cut to the right size, the robot arm will go out, take it out and put it into a bin. Uh, and so that robot is basically doing, you know, four human equivalents of work, times two shifts a day. So it might be eight people of work. Wow. You know, it's kind of massive productivity gains. And and again, you know, like it's not actually replacing none of not a single one of the factories that we've put a robot in has let any staff go. They're all desperate to hire more people and just can't fill the headcount. The typical factory in America has two hundred percent annual turnover. Two hundred percent. Every role in that factory they have to hire twice a year because people just don't want to do these jobs. And so they can't afford it. They're offering, you know, two, three, four thousand dollars sign-on bonuses for somebody who comes in and sticks with the job for three months. And like they rarely pay those bonuses. Like nobody sticks for sticks around for more than three months. Like these are very dull, very difficult jobs to do. And if you're gonna get paid minimum wage, you'd prefer to go work at Starbucks or somewhere else, which is a little bit more of a pleasant work environment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think it's uh, uh these robots, they fill empty headcount, but they've never replaced actual humans. Well, it does get to the question of like, it feels like there's like, we're on this continuum, right? Which you referred to earlier is like, you know, there's like really quote unquote dumb robots that do basic stuff. But as you move up the stack, you're kind of, it's just like an interesting societal question of like, you know, as these AI gets better and the powering these robots gets better, there's going to be more and more stuff that like 20, 30 years ago, a lot of people were doing, but hated their jobs because they're dull and repetitive or whatever. And if you get rid of those things, it's just interesting because there's the fear is always, of course, the rise of the robots, we're all going to be out of a job. But that's never happened thus far, because it's just opened new opportunities to do different stuff. But I don't know if you have a sense of kind of where this all leads. Maybe, you know, you can call me idealistic, but I think this is extremely necessary for the advancement of humanity. The example that I look at is there was a time in human society where everybody spent all of their time on subsistence, right? Like, how do we feed ourselves and how do we have shelter, right? Like, that's all anybody thought about. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't until we developed techniques where a small number of people could produce enough food for all people that we started to have human civilization really advance. People saw, thought about systems of politics and organ how to organize right. people, uh, arts and sciences, uh, like all of these things developed only because like suddenly subsistence wasn't an issue anymore. And I think we've evolved a lot since then, obviously, but still the majority of, of humanity spends their time making stuff, 
Right? That, that stuff is either, you know, a lot of it's digital nowadays, but it's still a very small percentage of the population that's making digital stuff. Yeah. Most people are making physical stuff, right? Whether it's houses or whether it's shampoo or whether it's food that we eat or whether it's, you know, my chair or cow- like everything in this room, right? everything is made in a factory somewhere. And there's a lot of people involved in that endeavor. And the other kind of force that goes along with that is as more people want the same stuff, the price of those things go up and that's inflation, right? And we have this giant, uh, we've seen a lot of inflation in the last few years. It's not stopping anytime soon because there's not enough stuff to go around. And so I think if we can drastically increase the means of production, if we can have 10 times more factories and each of them is working 10 times harder and doing a lot more, we'll see abundance, right? We'll see enough for everybody. And I think that's really where, where we're headed towards. And if the question is, well, what will all the people do? You know, I think that's, it's kind of sad to ask that question. I think human creativity and human potential is so much more than stacking cookies in a box. Like there's creativity, there's ideas, there's intelligence. And like, there's so much more that can be unleashed by using that intelligence in a more effective way. So it's because I believe in the, the potential of humans that I think we need much more robots. Right, 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 right. And is there a blocker to that? Just thinking about, again, these robotic arms that can do various things. It feels like what you said earlier is like, we're kind of there now in terms of like, it feels like there's a whole waterfront of stuff that could be automated today if the right incentives or enough kind of knowledge, enough people knew that what the possibilities were. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's a lot that robots can do today and there will be a lot more that robots will be able to do in the next 10 years. Cool. I think those are all my questions. I I look forward to seeing how it all develops. And we'll definitely have you back on before another five and a half years pass. (laughs) (laughs) And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Saman for coming back all the way back, going back from the Wayback Machine to present day. Thank you guys for listening, for your ratings, for your, your reviews. Please take a moment. Do that right now if you haven't already. Really, really, really helps. I am actually off this week, so I'm not writing in the paper, but you can always find me there at thetimes.co.uk or on Twitter at Danny Fortson. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous week, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.